What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the All Things Croatia podcast. Uh, we're super lucky today. We've got an awesome guest. We've got Pat, the Croatian sensation Militic here. Uh, he's an ex-MMA fighter, UFC champion. He's in the UFC Hall of Fame, uh, became a very successful coach and trainer after that. And we're going to hear from him today. Pat, thanks for coming on the podcast. No problem. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. Um, you know, first of all, if you could start us off, can you tell us a little bit about your uh, Croatian background and, you know, what you know about that? Yeah, my family, uh, the Milicic family, is from west of Zagreb, kind of a back then coal mining and farming region of Croatia. Uh, my uh, great-grandparents that came here, when they got to Ellis Island, basically, uh, you know, back in those days, they would ask people what they did for a living, you know, in their in their country of origin. And then they would try to send them to areas of, of the United States that made sense for their, you know, their knowledge, their occupational skills, things like that. So um, they were sent to southern Iowa, where coal mining and farming was really big. And that's kind of how, how the militias got at least in that group of militias ended up in Southern Iowa. Huh. At different times back then, I guess, huh? where they sort of send you where they want you to go as opposed to well, you. Well, and where you were going to be most prosperous, right? They wanted people to, to have good lives and, and contribute to society. That makes sense. Yeah. How much of that sort of, you know, Croatian heritage, did you ever hear the language growing up? Were you, I mean, surrounded by any of the culture at all? Things like that. Uh, how much were you surrounded by it? I was. What was inter interesting, though, and it was, you know, uh, my my father really never taught us any Croatian. He knew how to speak Croatian, but I believe he didn't teach us because he and his brother, Jerry, I think back in the day, uh, because they were Croatian immigrants in southern Iowa, um, they got in a few fights back then because they were immigrants or, or from Im immigrant, you know, families and everybody spoke Croatian back then, and uh, they got they got into some fist fights to say the least, and so uh, I think that they just I don't know for whatever reason speaking English was easier or or however that worked, uh, but but definitely at family reunions I would hear my great uncles and them speaking Croatian a lot, and uh, you know the family reunions were, were always you know it was cool it was cool because you were immersed back in like real Croatian. Um, the heritage and the just the the mindset, the immigrant mentality, the immigrant uh, work ethic, you know, all those things. That's right. Yeah, you just said immigrant mentality. That made me think of uh, Stipe Miocic because I know yeah. they throw his name around a lot when I hear that phrase. I forget who first. Um, what's the name? Joey Diaz or someone whoever coined that phrase and and uh, started talking about Stipe on the Joe Rogan. Well, that's yeah, and that's something that that's something that I've talked about you know, for many, many years, uh, because just that, you know, you got to do the work, you got to outwork everybody. Right. <clears throat> and that's why we, you know, when you look at the UFC, you look at a lot of guys who were not born in the United States who are doing quite well, winning titles, all that sort of stuff, because they, they know, you know, how rough life can be in certain places, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. you got that extra edge, you know? Sure. Sure. Yeah, definitely. But, you know, I want to let's get into the fighting a little bit. You came obviously before Stipe, before even, you know, Mirko Krokop, another famous, um, you know, Croatian fighter. And you're sort of people, you know, say that you might be one of the first sort of true mixed martial artists as far as, you know, 
combating with all styles and not just fighting with one sort of style. Um, how did you get started, you know, from a young age fighting or was that something you took on later? Well, I grew up obviously wrestling in Iowa. And so that wrestling from age five, I mean, that's two hours of what most would consider a street fight. You know, you're, you're, and Bettendorf, Iowa, where I grew up, you know, it was, it was a powerhouse for wrestling, even in the state of Iowa, you know, we were always a powerhouse. So the second and third string guys on our wrestling teams could generally go win tournaments everywhere else, you know, and that's just the way it was. And so that work ethic, that mentality of always winning, we didn't talk about if we were going to win. We were, you know, starting kiddies in the locker room, uh, throwing in a couple bucks to see who would get the fastest pin or the most takedowns or whatever. That was our mentality, you know, in, in that community, certainly. But um, when I went to college, my mom got sick with heart problems, left school to help kind of pay her bills working three jobs, and then totally by chance, one of my foremen, a finisher on my concrete crew, was a black belt in karate and said he could he could whip a wrestler any day because he was a black belt. And I said, he, I said, you're from Kentucky. Have you ever had a guy from Iowa grab a hold of you? <laughs> and he, he's like, no. He goes, but at lunchtime, we can go check it out. We can go see. And so we went out in the field, and I threw him around a little bit, and, and he gave me a free week pass to – his kickboxing and karate gym. And uh, I went to free lessons that week and I thought it was a complete joke until Friday. I went and watched the black belt sparring and they were going hard. I mean, they were, they could bang, they were going hard. And I went, okay, this is what I'm signing up for. So that's how I got started in it. And then really kickboxing, won a U.S. title in kickboxing and then mixed martial arts came along, obviously, and my wrestling background and had been doing some judo and some other stuff on top of the kickboxing and Muay Thai and karate. And I went, holy cow, my, my sport has literally just been invented. So, uh, well, yeah, that's sort of, I was thinking as you told that story, I mean, that's pretty much how the UFC came to be, you know, my style is better than your style. Yeah. And you know, what's cool is my great uncle, um, Johnny Militich, they call, he changed his name to Myler for his ring name because he didn't want his mother to know that he was boxing. Right. So back in the days, late 20s, early 30s, all of that stuff, he had left Albia, Iowa, gone to Detroit to work in the Ford Motor Company uh, factory up there, and then the Depression hit. And so he went back to boxing, and he, as amateurs, he knocked Joe Lewis down seven times in three rounds. He won that fight pretty easily. Uh, people don't know about that. But my uncle, uh, Johnny Mylar Militich, uh, made the 32 Olympic boxing team. He fought Maxie Rosenblum twice for the world title, light heavyweight world title, had a draw and a, a, a split decision loss uh, in those fights. <clears throat> and both times the crowds rioted because my uncle beat the shit out of him. And, uh, you know, back then the mob ran boxing. That's just the way it was. So Maxie was, I think, a product and protected to a certain extent. But, uh, yeah, so the, the, the combat mentality was definitely, I think it runs through Croatian blood anyway, but, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, the catches, and, and back then the catches catch can wrestling was big which he used to go to carnivals you know the farmer burns the, the gotchas all those guys the earl Leadermans back in those days so my uncle would go to carnivals and state fairs and when the when the carnival strongmen would do their feats of strength they'd always after they do that challenge anyone in the crowd 
to get in either the boxing ring with them or get in and do a catch-as-catch-can wrestling match with them. And my uncle would go and beat up Carnival Strongman to hone his skills. He would he would do that stuff. <laughs> so so that was really the mixed martial artist. He he was already a mixed martial artist back in the you know twenties and thirties. Wow, yeah, that that's such like an old school training. Uh... Cool history, right? Cool history. I mean, those yeah. guys were, and back in those days, when you look at, I, I collect old books. Uh, the the how tos, like catches catch can wrestling books and stuff like that. Those guys look like they're on a list of steroids as long as your leg, because we still had a lot of of nutrients left in our soil. So the factory farming has destroyed our soil so badly that mm. we're not we're not as blessed with testosterone. We're not as blessed with strength, tendon strength, explosiveness, um, all those things, um, unless we're specifically looking for those concentrated organic nutrients that allow our body to you know get a lot stronger uh in those ways so that's that's it's a huge difference when you look at the, the people back then naturally were just very very powerful people mm -hmm. yeah that's an interesting point um i want i heard you tell this story on another podcast i think it was with croatiansports.com way back in the day and um you know about your nickname the croatian sensation i was wondering if you could sort of tell that again how you how you got that nickname yeah, so there was a guy that played football for my dad. My dad was a college football coach, among other things. And uh, they, they put the white athletic tape on the front of your helmet and write your name in a black marker, you know, so the coaches would learn everybody's names. And um, <laughs> excuse me, his his last name was Burrich. And so he got his bell wrong. He was playing fullback, I believe, at the time, or linebacker. I can't remember. And got his bell rung and was laying on his back. And my dad walked up and stood over him and said, Burrich, are you Croatian? And he said, yeah. He goes, then get the hell up. And he called him the Croatian sensation. My dad called him that. And then when he was a sports broadcaster, um, then he dubbed me the Croatian sensation after that. So That's awesome. I love that story. And you, you stuck with yeah, that your whole, your whole fighting what, career. Dude. Yes. Yes. It stuck with me. Yes. Most definitely. And, uh, Burrich, Burrich was a guy that was a really good college football player, but he also became, uh, uh, he did some boxing as well while he was a, a sports broadcaster and he and I used to spar with each other. He was a pretty hard nosed guy. Mm -hmm. Uh, I want to ask sort of about the early days. I mean, you fought in the early days of the UFC, really. What sort of difference do you see between those days when you were fighting and, and nowadays, as far as your talent, I mean, basically well i think i think that there's always been while there's always been talented people in the sport you know you're going to get your olympics you know your olympic silver medalist gold medalist stuff like that which existed back when i was fighting but it, i think it's you know obviously people have a lot a lot bigger purses uh you're going to get a bigger pool of athletes generally things like that uh, it's been I think fighters do it more for the money now than the back when I was fighting, we did it for the passion, mm. you know, the passion, the martial arts kind of mentality, so to speak. And, uh, you know, we were kind of on a mission to make the sport a mainstream sport. Right? We were doing debates with politicians on TV, all training for our fights, you know, trying to keep it legal, you know, so the, the fight was more than just getting ready for a fight, obviously. Mm -hmm. Do you find that there's any difference between like the stereotype around it or sort of how fans were back in those days versus, you know, today, now that it's mainstream? Well, I mean, we obviously weren't accepted 
in the mainstream early on, you know, the uh, politicians and the athletic commissions not getting their cut of the money was the problem, right? And so they vilified us and for, for those reasons and, and uh, you know, until they could bring people, you know, basically figure out sanctioning, all those sort of things, right? Yeah, yeah. But, but, it, but it, in, in all debates, it always came down to when the politicians were saying they were concerned about the safety of the athletes, I would just simply say they're they're not concerned with the safety of the athletes. That's not even remotely their concern because they wouldn't allow Little League Baseball to take place in their state, which has seven deaths a year from kids getting hit with line drives or auto racing where even spectators die. And, you know, on, on down the list, you know, boxers, I think roughly 40 boxers die worldwide a year. So, you know, that's not even counting the, you know, pretty severe injuries that take place. So when I would say that, they would basically have to admit that, yes, it does come down to the money and that's what they're after and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So it was it was pretty easy debating people who were not prepared to debate somebody that knew the statistics and things like that. Huh, that's interesting. Uh, I want to throw sort of a fun question at you here. Uh, what was your entrance song back in the day? And if you had to fight again today, would you change it to a different song or would it be the same one? Um, I came out to a couple different ones, to be honest with you. ACDC, I used to come out to Rob Zombie, Super Beast, nice. um, you know, a couple other ones, Metallica, stuff like that. So, um, but, you know, the funny thing is, is I actually, it's kind of crazy. I was, I've been, I've been getting my body kind of back in shape right now, uh, kind of focusing. And it's coming back a lot faster than I thought it would. And I know that it sounds kind of crazy, but I mean, in my mid fifties, I actually feel really good. Um, I don't have any aches and pains for the most part. Um, I can still go out and run 10 miles. You know, I can get that done. Not a problem. So I might actually be fighting Mike Jackson in October in Davenport, Iowa. He's the guy that wrote the article, the lies, uh, the article. Um, he's a very left-leaning individual who write, wrote lies about me being in Washington, D.C. on January 6th and said that I supported white supremacy and domestic terrorism, and I lost my broadcasting job because of it. So he, he wrote straight-out lies. And so um, he actually, at least verbally, has agreed to do a mixed martial arts fight against me in the caged aggression event in October which we do the live pay-per-views for that. I started a uh, internet pay-per-view company to do that. So he's, he has, uh, I don't know, volunteered to dedicate, you know, donate his body to science, I guess. And, and going to, going to take one for the team, you know, let his ego yeah. get involved. And so, yeah, I'm going to do it probably one more time. It sounds like, and uh, go out and beat up a 30 some year old youngster who's a UFC veteran. And, um, kind of teach him a lesson about life, about, you know, attempting to ruin people's lives with lies is is not always going to pay off for you. Huh. Wow. That's, I mean, that's cool that you're, you're able to go to the ring then with him and sort of hash that. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this for all the people that had to decide between feeding their families and keeping their houses and, a, a you know, an, a, an experimental uh, medical treatment, right. That's cost that's costing people, you know, their health right now. And we know that for a fact. And, you know, I'm doing it for all the military people who decided to walk away or stay to feed their families uh, based on the mandatory 
you know, stuff that was going on. I'm doing it for all the medical professionals that stood their ground on it. You know, all the, all those people I'm doing it for people who believe in the truth, right? If we ultimately believe in the, in the first amendment, we believe in the truth, no matter how uncomfortable the truth is, we have to accept the truth and we have to search for the truth continually within ourselves and in society in general. And, uh, you know, taking the right of people, the, the autonomy of their own bodies and ripping that out from underneath them, there is no more frontiers of freedom left, right, at that point. So that's why, that's why I'm doing this. I have no reason to get into a cage and, and have a fight with another gentleman except for something that's, that's important to me. So, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, bigger than, than just yourself and, and looking yeah. to get back in. Right, right, uh, yeah. Uh, sort of going back to, I mean, after after you retired, you know, you got into color commentary. Uh, you sort of mentioned that, but you also became a coach and trainer, and you started the Militich Fighting Systems, which was, you know, sort of a, a training school for mixed martial arts, which was extremely successful. And I was wondering, can you attribute that to any particular thing, or is it just sort of a combination of of everything that you were doing? Well, you know, because I had done a, a lot of different types of martial arts, I had boxed, I had wrestled my whole life, all those different things. And the components, one thing that I recognized is that many times, just like religion or something else, a belief in life, uh, people were going into the cage with their with their one specific discipline or a li very limited spectrum of disciplines and depending on one thing and um, kind of wearing that like a religion almost, right? And their egos were what was causing that. And so for me, I recognized that I don't think I had to admit to myself that I wasn't good enough at any one thing to beat people um, with just that one thing. I needed to be well-versed and be able to hang with the best Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belts in the world, in their world, hang with the best boxers in the world, and just sparring with, with you know, some of the world's best boxers training with the world's best Muay Thai kickboxers, you know, all those different areas and disciplines where if I could hang with them and stay fairly competitive in those worlds, all of them independently, that I would be able to put all those tools together and be able to find a weakness in somebody else's game, be able to exploit that and beat them. And that was the mentality. And that's kind of the mentality that I instilled in, you know, a lot of the fighters that I trained, obviously. And we we had a good run. We had 95 athletes put into televised careers, 12 world champions, uh, two team world championships in the IFL. So, you know, I kind of reached all my goals as a coach. I was coaching a lot when I was fighting as well, um, kind of like Paul Newman in Slapshot, so to speak. <laughs> Have you ever seen Slapshot? Actually, I haven't. No, my dad talks about it. I never saw it, though. You, you go, go, go watch Slapshot. It's a hilarious movie. It's a great movie. It's a classic. But I was kind of like the playing coach. Paul Newman was playing on the team still while he was coaching. And uh, so that's kind of how I felt. Okay. But you, you stopped coaching in what, 08 or somewhere around there? Or as far as yeah, somewhere around fighting. there. Somewhere around there. And I still I still do law enforcement and military uh, trainings, hmm. you know, where it's it's not it's not a submission type situation, things like that. It's the fundamentals of movement. Uh, we focus on the head, the hands, and the hips, um, really simplifying things for law enforcement officers who don't get a lot of time to train um, for, you know, combat soldiers, 
and worked with you know a lot of different groups in the military as well, just helping them uh, dealing with keeping their weapon, for instance, um, getting back up off the ground after they've been knocked down, you know, and getting up intelligently, uh, being able to uh, deal with multiple attackers, you know, a lot of that sort of stuff as well. And, and uh, you know, so I've gotten, you know, I get a lot of enjoyment out of helping those folks. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. I'll ask you this just because my dad was wondering the other day about uh, Krav Maga. Do you have any any thoughts on that? Because it sounds somewhat similar to to sort of what you're training, sort of real life self defense type of. I mean, obviously with being a police officer or, or in the military, um, sort of a different aspect to that. Yeah, I think with anything, you know, I, I think conceptually, conceptually, Krav Maga makes sense. You know, it's a combative art that deals with you know a spectrum of things, whether armed or or unarmed, whatever. Um, it always is going to come down to the. The people that are teaching and the practitioners, you know, you, I've seen a lot of mixed martial arts gyms where it's just a, a lobotomy of, of just horrible technique. Uh, so I, I'm a big, I'm, I'm really a stickler on fundamentals, technique, mechanics, all of those sorts of things and why we do certain things the way we do them. You know, so I think if the, the instructor is, has good fundamentals and mechanics and knowledge and actual history, you know, dealing with real world situations, it makes sense. You know, that's that's where people need to really pay attention uh, because you can walk in somewhere and somebody can tell you they're a nine-time world champion or whatever and just completely lead you down the wrong the wrong path. And for instance, if, if you go somewhere to learn how to box or do kickboxing, if the first thing they teach you is how to punch, leave because that's not what it's about. It's about footwork, head movement, defensive skills, all of those sort of things. And if I learn to, or I teach someone how to move correctly, and once they learn how to move correctly, uh, mechanically correct, then their that they do is going to be correct and based off of, you know, those the, the footwork and the head movement and all those sort of things. And so, you know, it's like today I was working with a kid that was brand new. And we spent, you know, 45 minutes working on footwork and head movement, you know, just teaching him the fundamentals of how to move correctly. So that when I did get to a jab and a cross, it was super easy for him. He understood the mechanics. Uh, sort of from the ground up type of type of deal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's 99% of human beings. Well, when we look at it, you know, humans are the only animal born on this planet with no self-defense instinct born into them, right? Mm. So if they're not taught, they're helpless. So we have to teach people how to move first, and then we go from there. Huh. Yeah, that's a good point. I like that. Um, Pat, you know, I sort of asked about everything that you've been doing, but I want to ask, you know, what are what sort of projects are you involved with now? Either in the fighting you um, know, or outside of it. Just over the years, I've learned about some supplementation and things a little bit different than most people, their path, I guess. And so I, I started a product with uh, my partner, Tim James, at Chemical Free Body. It's a product called Super Soldier. So it's very high-grade antioxidants that, you know, when we put antioxidants into our body, we're looking to raise oxygen levels in the cells. We're looking to remove heavy metals and synthetic chemicals um, that are affecting the immune system and overall athletic performance and endurance and recovery and uh, aiding in the mitochondria 
you know, being able to function correctly and sell function. So most of the products that you're going to get off store shelves at any, you know, any store or any supplement company store are generally going to be produced with a lot of fillers, a lot of chemicals, a lot of garbage um, that don't move the needle. And so if you really, really want to become, you know, more healthy, obviously, but a higher level athlete, you're never going to do it with stuff that just comes from, you know, laboratories. It's just not going to happen. So where can people, you know, find out more about this or, you know, contact you? Uh, they can go to, uh, they can go to chemicalfreebody.com and the product is called super soldier. And if they use uh, promo code SOS, they can save 5% off the product as well. And the SOS stands for kind of Americans health right now, overall sending out an SOS to everybody to, you know, because when we look at Americans in general, the obesity, the deformities, the mental illness, you know, all the stuff that's happening generally is, can be contributed to, you know, the, the chemicals and heavy metals in our environment, however they get there. So we have to be able to remove those from our body to be able to, you know, sustain health. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's, I mean, that's one thing they say here about Europe is that, you know, the food is so much, healthier than that in the u.s i mean well, and that's the thing. yeah and i tell this story all the time fighters would come from all over the world and they'd go to our grocery stores in the town i grew, grew up in and they would come back to the gym that night and go now we know why americans are all disease-ridden and obese you guys are being poisoned mm. and it's 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 a lot different here and so you have to at some point go is this by design? It's been going on 40, 45 years, right? Hmm. So yeah. where these where these chemicals in farming, chemicals in our food, all these sort of things are not even legal in places like Europe. Why are why are they why are they being thrown all over our soil and our crops, you know, nationwide here? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, just what you mentioned, high fructose corn syrup. I know that's not legal here in Europe, or at least most parts in Europe, and it's in like every every food imaginable in the U.S. Yep, yep. Yeah. Well, Pat, I got just a few more quick questions for you. One, actually, I forgot to ask this earlier on, but I know you've got a tattoo of the Croatian uh, gutter, you know, the uh, symbol on your arm. I couldn't tell if it was the left or right. I saw a couple pictures, I guess. It's my, it's, yeah, it's the crest on my left shoulder. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, when did you get that? I couldn't even tell you. Many years ago. Yeah, a long time ago. That's awesome. It's a super sick tattoo. I love that. Um, and then just last two questions here. One piece of advice that you would give to sort of young adults. Uh, you know, that's, yeah. Do your research on what food you're putting in your body. Find good purification system for your water, certainly in America. And uh, be your own doctor. Educate yourself so that you're not dependent on the system um, because the system is one of synthetic chemicals causing illness. And then you go to a guy in a white lab coat and he writes you a prescription for more synthetic chemicals. So free yourself from the system, be your own doctor, and take care of yourself so that you're not one of these folks walking around in public who can barely walk or have to use a hover around or whatever and, you know, ended up mentally or physically deformed and ill because they you know didn't know any better hmm. well pat you know i want to thank you again for coming on the podcast i just have one last thing that i have been asking you know all the guests 
who come on. And that's just for you. What makes Croatia or Croatians special? I think throughout their history, it's just been a, a you know, a unique, tiny country that has been able to do things like stop the Ottoman Empire in 15, what, 97 in Sisic. Um, you know, a tiny country that was the only country on the planet that could yield a basketball team that could hang with the, you know, NBA all-stars in the Olympics, the dream team, so to speak. Um, you know, just Croatian blood. There's something special about it. Awesome. Pat, well, thank you again for coming here on the podcast. It's been a pleasure hearing from you. All right. Thank you.